Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm very excited to have uh, today uh, on this podcast Heidi Roizen from uh, DFJ. She's the operating partner at DFJ, and she has an amazing background, having been a, a founder herself um, and then have had some amazing board positions, having uh, been in the position to lecture people in Stanford University and, of course, her time as an investor, where she continues to operate in DFJ. But as we normally start, it's always great to get a personal view into who you were when you first started off. Great. And I know you started off as an English major. I did. Which is like, you know, you're now an entrepreneurship major, and, major. and you're doing all these great things in, in, in with founders, but English. How did you yes. make that transition? Well, and thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan, as you know, so thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, you know, it's a simple story. I mean, I think that... Uh, Yes, I was an English major, and as such, I was a writer, and I did a lot of writing. And I know it's hard to think back to ancient history, but back then you wrote on a typewriter, and you erased things with whiteout. And I know that makes me sound very ancient, but the first time I actually got to use a digital version of that and was able to use technology to write things on a screen and be able to cut and paste and edit, it was a near religious experience for me. And that was immediately after I got my undergraduate degree when I actually went out and I was the editor of the company newspaper for Tandem Computers, a very early high-flying tech company. Wow. So when I got there and I was able to use a Tandem computer, in, it was like a religious experience for me. Meanwhile, my brother, who uh, it was and is a programmer, was writing software for this new generation of personal computers which yeah. was back then in the CPM days, which again makes me sound like ancient history. But um, my brother and I decided to start a company together. He was the, you know, the, the person who invented the product and wrote the code and did everything, but I was the person who did everything else. I sort of did the manuals and, and, and went and closed sales and went and demoed it in front of... Uh, you were just learning on the go? Uh, just learning on the go, right? You know, we, we, nobody, we didn't know enough to know. We didn't know how to do it, so we did it. the funniest mistake you made during that period? Oh, my God. I made so many mistakes, so many mistakes. Um, you know, it's all the classic mistakes. You do the wrong hiring. You, well, one day, actually, the funniest mistake I ever made was I had all the evening mail, and I had all the checks to deposit, and I, I had been working so late into the night that I put all the mail into the bank deposit drop and I dropped all of our revenue oh. into the mailbox. <laughs> so that was a mistake and that required a little work to, to get out of it. But it was, you know, it was a wonderful experience for us. We really yeah. were, and I think the key is, my brother and I were both extremely passionate about what we were doing, right? He was very passionate about the code and building an elegant product. I was very passionate about what real people not software engineers, but people like me could do with personal computers and yeah. with applications. And so it was just, it was an incredibly fantastic time to start mm. a company. And I know that you did an MBA. Um, I don't know what the timing was. but I you, did. Between what? undergrad and, and um, well, I got out undergrad with my English degree, went to work for Tandem Computers. Mm -hmm where I was the proverbial petunia in the yeah. onion patch, right? You know, everyone yeah. was a technologist there and I was an English major and yeah. I looked around and everyone getting ahead yeah. either had an MBA or an engineering degree. Yeah. And it was too late for me to be an engineer. Yeah. But I could go get an MBA. So I thought, well, this business stuff is really kind of fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things, I was, I was at Stanford for my undergrad. Stanford yeah. does, didn't and doesn't have an undergrad degree in business. Yeah. But they do have a, an excellent business school. And so um, they were nice enough to let me in. And I went back and got my MBA. And then did what no one at the time did, 
finished my MBA and started a company with my brother, right? But how, how critical, I mean, some people nowadays are very cynical about MBAs and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, I don't know, but how critical would you say for a founder today who is maybe in the same situation you are, somebody who's ambitious about starting a company, yeah. how much is further education relevant and how much of it is just well, I'm a bit I'm a look I'm a big fan of education right yeah. and I have two kids in college and yeah. paying a lot of money for that so clearly I believe in that yeah. I am a big fan of the business school of Stanford Business School I also yeah. lecture at other places Wharton Harvard a number of other schools and I'm big fans of what they do yeah. it's not for everyone Hi, you know certainly I believe in under, undergraduate education is great because it's a it's an experience it's a it's a it's a growth experience mm -hmm. in terms of business school it's not necessarily for everyone I think if you are if you are compelled and passionate and you are and you have an, a product you're working on right now mm -hmm. to drop everything and go get an MBA is probably not a good idea yeah. right on the other hand if you've worked in an enterprise and and you've worked in a larger company and you think I'm ready to go out on my own, but I'm not quite sure what I want to do yet. But I know I need to go develop skills. I need to go live in the ecosystem. I mean, I'm sorry, this is a shameless plug for Stanford, but yeah. there's no better place to come <laughs> than a place where we live and breathe and think entrepreneurship. You're close to you know all the big you know all the big tech companies. Mm -hmm. You're close to all the big sources of capital. You've got a tremendous mentor network. Um, you know, at Stanford, I have um, my students. We uh, DFJ underwrites a program for graduate students there. My students are our students are paired up one to one mm. with people like Tom Pru, the founder of Intuit. Mm. You know, I mean, these are the mentors you get to have in a one on one. That you know, where are you going to get that anywhere else yeah. in the world? So, admittedly, we have a bit of a of, yeah. a, of so an advantage shameless, here. Yeah, definitely a shameless plug for Stanford. For yeah, sure. that was my shameless plug. But um, <laughs> one of the things that that is interesting about that that transition between obviously your MBA and then working with your brother is you know you were selling to Apple uh, as part of the company with your brother, if I understand mm -hmm. it correctly. Yeah. How did you then transition from from your you and your brother's company to your role in Apple? So um, so you know the other thing about entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship is a long game, right? From the day my brother and I decided we were going to start working together and forming TeamMaker to the day that I left TeamMaker was 14 years. So for anyone who thinks you know get rich quick startup, you know like yeah. that's not the way it works for most people. You have to be willing to be in there and be in for a long time. Yeah. So yeah, you know we ran the company, grew the company, grew it up to about a hundred people, uh, and you know at, at a certain point you're kind of done. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone's done, but I was kind of done, and I was ready. There was an exit opportunity. We sold to someone. We yeah. made our investors happy, made us happy. I continued to run uh, TeamMaker for the acquirer, but I think. Some things have their arc, and sometimes it's your personal arc. I was yeah. kind of done. I had a one-year-old child. I was yeah. actually, by the time I, I exited, I had two children. Yeah. And it was time to go do something else. And so the opportunity to go to Apple was really compelling. It was sort of the idea that I had been, uh, TeamMaker had shipped the fifth product ever for the Mac, yeah. right? So you buy a Mac, you go to the store, there were only five things you could buy. We were one of the five things. Yeah. So we had been, we had more in, in many ways, uh, we depended more on Apple's decisions than people who worked for Apple depended mm. on them, right? We would live or die by the decisions Apple would make. So I was an advocate for Apple and a critic of Apple in every way, shape, and form, right? Mm. Both on the positive as well as on the negative. And I think that um, the, the person there who hired me, um, Dave Nagel, who was the CTO, asked me to come and head developer relations. Mm. And it was sort of like, well, you know, you keep complaining about what we should be doing. Well, why don't you come in and run the place for a while? Yeah. And so in a funny way, it was it was really like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You know, I it was see. really saying, let's take someone from the developer community who has yeah. lived and breathed 
relationship with Apple for 14 years and bring them inside the, the community. And so it was it was it was really exciting. It was very challenging and a very challenging time in Apple's history, but a very exciting yeah. role. In so I want to hear more about Apple, but before we go there, I want to explore a little bit about sort of the hundred nature of the, of the company, uh, TeamMaker, before you, you sold it. Um, what, what was it like, maybe if you had to summarize the top three managerial lessons in scaling a team uh, up to that size? Like the things that you're like, you know what, these three things are... Well, I, I mean, I think there are a number of things. I mean, first, the first thing is just, if you want to be the smartest person in the room, you will surround yourself with crummy people. So first of all, everyone who's starting a company has to get over wanting to be the smartest person in the room. And I think we were really lucky that we had some really, really wonderful people and really, really smart people. But when you have smart people, you don't get to be smarter than them about everything. You have to learn to let go. You have to learn to help people understand what your mission is and what your direction is, but then stay out of their way. And then you have to figure out how to resolve conflict. And so I don't have a secret playbook for those things, but I think those are super, super mission critical. The other thing is, you know, when you start, you're one, you're two people, you're four people, you're five people, everyone can sit around, you can resolve your issues, everyone knows what the direction is, you, you almost, you don't need to have any kind of communication strategy around your culture, around anything else, because you're all sitting in the same room all the time, you're sick of each other. Yeah. As you grow, you start to diminish that relationship, right? You, you can't put 100 people in a room, you can't check in with 100 people. Yeah. And so, you know, I would say two things, one is, it is very, I believe it's very important for the CEO to continue to be involved in the hiring process because there's something about that process that you are defining your culture as you're doing your hiring. And if you just delegate it and, and you get one bad person in there who doesn't know how to, how to hire, you are gonna be stuck with people and it's really hard to get rid of people, right? And the second thing is you have to understand that a big part of the CEO's job is around communication. I mean, I do think it's actually rather funny that I think one of the one of the things I had going for me is I was an English major. I was a creative writing major. I knew how to tell a story. And that ability to tell a story and convince someone mm -hmm. to go with you is a really important part of ultimately what I think CEO-manship and leadership is all about. Mm. No, those valuable lessons. Um, Okay, so if we go back to, to where you were at, at Apple, um, that was a very interesting time for Apple. It was. Prior, prior to OS X, you know, I remember being in, 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 in situations where people would mock Apple's yes. stability and yes. software wasn't great. Yes. And, and what was it like to be there and well, Apple was Apple was on the brink of death. I mean, we literally almost went bankrupt. Yeah. You know, that was it was very dark times, right? The mm. the press uh, we used to joke that we worked for the beleaguered Apple computer because the press called it that all the time. But you know, ultimately, Apple had some great DNA. It had some great products. Um, we still had a lot of believers there, mm. even at our low. I think the the low we were still eleven or twelve billion in revenue. So we still had some muscle power, right? We had install base was about 25 million max when I was there. So we still had some things going for us. And then of course, the miraculous transformation that was, um, you know, Steve coming back to Apple. Uh, that was a very difficult period. It wasn't clearly obvious that that was all going to work. And yeah. it did. And I'm very thankful. I'm a dyed in the wool Mac user. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for April 10th so I can order my watch and nice. I've got so many damn Apple devices. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like mission control when I, when I go to the airport and I've got my everything with yeah. me. I mean, it's crazy and I'm going to have one more Apple device. So yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm just really happy Apple is there. I just think that they, they, uh, they have a, a DNA as a company yeah. that's just remarkable. And again, I'm not always a fan of everything Apple yeah. does, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. Yeah, and, and so you must have been during that period where 
a lot of the leadership around product-driven decisions and, and, and the quality that Apple now espouses was right. being reestablished. Yes, in absolutely. And they had lost sight of that. You know, mm. They had really lost track of that. There were way too many models. There wasn't a lot of differentiation. There wasn't a clear understanding mm. of what the company was all about. And I mean, I give Steve Jobs and the team he created mm. there. Not only, it, it wasn't only just Steve. You know, yes, mm. Steve was amazing. It was Steve. But it was also the team he brought with him from Next. And then it was also some of the people that he hired and he also empowered there. Mm. I mean, you know, Steve is one in a trillion person. It's, it's really hard to describe the impact mm. he had there. But the one thing I would say about Steve that um, you know that I that I witnessed and experienced in our brief overlap mm. when I when I was there is that he was not afraid to make really hard decisions, mm. and and I look back on that and I and I am I am really thrilled that he did so. You know, at the time, you know, when I was there, I'm the VP of Developer Relations. My job is supposed to keep everyone on the platform mm. and keep the platform progressing. And when you suddenly buy a company that has an operating system that doesn't even run on your installed base, mm. what are you telling the developer community, right? Mm. Well, you're telling the developer community, we're going to do something big and bold, but it's going to take us a while and it's not going to be an easy migra migration path. Are mm. you with me or are you not? A lot of developers don't make it through, you know, they don't cross that chasm. Mm. But somebody has to be bold and brave and do it. And, you so know, I give me, them a lot of credit for let's that. Let's explore being brave because, you know, now, and, and we'll kind of, go back to your transition into venture but but because we're on this topic would be interesting to find out is this this role of asking and making very difficult decisions mm -hmm. and with founders that you work with right now how do you help them with that process because there's two kinds of decisions there's a the kind of decision when you know it's the right decision to make it right. just happens to be a difficult one like right. you know you need to lay people like off. firing someone I'm gonna do it it's hard yeah, it's hard and it's painful to, right? and it's awful but then there's a different kind of difficult decision where you're like I have four or five different options it's difficult by the nature that I don't know which one of them right. is the right one. Right. How, what What advice do you give founders that you're working with when they're in that situation? Well, I think first of all, on decision making, I mean, one of the interesting things I, it was actually Martin Mikos who said this in 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 one of my class sessions in the past. He said, if you're really struggling between two paths on a decision, they're probably both right. Mm -hmm. Which, first of all, I think is a great liberating thing to think. You know, you can make not everything is black and white and right and wrong. Right. You can look around and you can really work hard and think hard but ultimately you're going to make lots of little decisions some mm. big decisions and sometimes either avenue is right it doesn't matter you know other times not it's, mm. and i wish i had the magic solution for that i do think there's a difference between um bravery and foolishness mm. and i think bravery is knowing well i can fire this one bad apple now or i'm going to have to fire 10 people later when this person isn't you know whatever or people you know generally people don't want to fire people because they want to be nice and also because if I fire you then who's going to do your work while I'm trying to find a new person and I'm already busy enough but yeah. I think it's the number one mistake entrepreneurs make is is they tend to hang on to people who are the wrong fit too long because mm. they feel like that's the nicer thing to do yeah. or it's the easier thing to do right the path of least resistance yeah. and I think that that is a really dangerous thing to do but the other thing is it's a brave move to say oh, our product isn't really competitive and now we've got this new idea but it's going to require us to go there and here's what we're going to do. And it's it's brave to give up legacy, mm. right? What, what Steve did at Apple, referring mm. to that in the past, was he in essence gave up legacy. Mm. It's brave to give up legacy. It's also really scary and it could be really expensive, especially when you're in the entrenched player. Yeah. But foolishness is when, for example, you know, I can't tell you how many times we get pitched a product and I'll say, oh, that sounds a lot like blah. And the person will say, well, what's blah? And I'll, like, I'll be like, well, here, it's on my iPhone. I've already downloaded it. And mm. they're like, oh, I haven't really looked at the competition. It's like, so to me, sometimes entrepreneurs can be so mm. 
focused and, and myopic and so convinced that they need to be an entrepreneur that they waste their time and, and energy doing things that other people are already doing, right? So bravery is, yeah. I'm gonna take on Microsoft or yeah. I'm gonna take on Google or I'm gonna take on Facebook because I've got a better idea. Mm. Foolishness is, I'm gonna take on those guys and even though they're already shipping a product, mine's gonna be 10% better and I'm gonna be, you know, I'm gonna be the dude. So I, I, I think in a way you've started down a list that I wanted to ask you anyway, which is what do you look for in companies? Right. Because, all right, so it's, in a market where there's competitive differentiation and a CEO who clearly understands uh, who he needs to staff up and, and, and yes. the bravery and brave enough to make these decisions. Yeah. But on top of that, what other things really excite you and your team when you're well, looking at? Well, I mean, at you know, at DFJ, and every firm is different, and yeah. I encourage, again, entrepreneurs, if you're raising money, you really have to understand venture is not, it's not like the bank. You don't come here and apply, and we look at it, and if you, we can check all the boxes, you get it. It's a very personal business. When we're sitting here with an entrepreneur, we're thinking, do I want to spend the next five to ten years of my life with you? Can I trust you? Are you painting a vision? Am I? Do I believe you're going to persevere when the chips are down, right? Mm. Do I believe you really know what you're doing? Because I'm not going to know your business anywhere near as well as you're going to know your business. So it really is still very much people, a people business. That said, we're also looking for big markets. You know, at DFJ and every firm is different. You know, our motto is think big, right? We are trying to disrupt big industries like cars and space and energy and mm. and and you know i mean spacex tesla box solar city uh you know planet labs i mean those are the kind of deals that we like to do we're looking at things in deep learning we're looking at things in quantum computing we're looking at um we look at you know we look at big ideas right and so we do look for someone who who wants to disrupt something big and most people who want to disrupt something big they are risk-taking people, right? They are sometimes slightly crazy people. And and we, you know, we joke around, like sometimes someone will go, oh, that entrepreneur is crazy. And we'll go, well, can we find out if he's good crazy or bad crazy? Because we don't want to do bad crazy people, but we want to do good crazy people, but crazy looks like crazy sometimes. Yeah. And you have to work with them to find out if they're good crazy or bad crazy. Yeah. So, you know, a bold person like an Elon Musk, you know, he had some you, bold ideas, right? And yeah, some I, of them are. <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you work with somebody who's good? Well, crazy? I, mean, I like, wish I did. I don't personally work with Elon. Steve Jurvetson works yeah. mostly with Elon. But, but I mean, uh, what's that relationship like? I mean, a lot of founders probably don't even know what that's like when they have somebody like you or Steve or somebody else on their board. Like, what is that relationship at the level where these companies are already? Great? Well, at the end of the day, you know, the best VCs understand that they're not the entrepreneur. Yeah, it's not our baby. It's not our company, and we can't fix things, yeah. right? We can help, yeah. right? We can we can make a phone call. We can make an introduction. We can stand with you and provide more capital when when you've got to walk through the valley of death. Yeah. You know, we can we, we can believe along with you, right? And yeah. that's a big part of you know a lot of the success stories are believing along with someone yeah. when they go through their chasm. Yeah. Um, but we cannot fix your business, right? Yeah. And so this idea that. I think that a mistake a lot of early a lot of early stage VCs or early, when early in their careers, they look at things and they because they're optimists, right? We're yeah. op you don't do this if you're not an optimist. Yeah. So we think, oh, I can fix that. Oh, I can help him. Oh, I can yeah. run his. I can teach him. Yeah. And it's fine to mentor someone, and not everybody walks in perfectly formed with the entire skill set, right? When you're investing in a yeah. in an Aaron Levy straight out of out of uh, not even out of undergrad, you know, you're going to do some mentoring along yeah. the way, but picking someone who needs a lot of remedial work is not a good path to success and you know obviously i mean it's easy now to look in the rearview mirror and say yeah. well aaron that was a good choice right because yeah. he's fantastic right yeah. he's amazing yeah. but he needed some mentoring along the way right yeah. and and you know finding that team of people to help him is 
is is part of what we do. So we are we are helpers. When I was an entrepreneur, I thought what was amazing about raising venture is if I picked the right VCs, not only did they give me money, but then they would work tirelessly for mm. me for free. Mm. And that's what I think you have to think about as the VC entrepreneur relationship. At the end of the day, we work for our entrepreneurs. Mm. They don't work for us. Well, that's great. That's a great way to end the the podcast. Um, as you know, tradition has it, uh, you get to shamelessly plug anything you're passionate about, anything you'd like to to promote. Uh, so uh, this is your opportunity to share it with the rest of the community. All right. Well, my shameless plug is is just this. I, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the valley around uh, diversity, mm-hmm. and uh, today there was not a single woman who came through on the mm-hmm. demo pitch day, mm-hmm. and uh, I, there, I, 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 I almost. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because mm-hmm. that's a, we could spend another five hours talking mm-hmm. about this, but I'll just say this. I really like when people understand that diversity is important, mm-hmm. and particularly for me, my personal passion right now is at least at the board level, as you're assembling a board of directors for your company, try to find some diversity. Mm-hmm. Age diversity, gender diversity, mm-hmm. diversity is good, mm-hmm. and finding that on your team and bringing that into your team, and and you know, my feeling is by the time you get to 20 people, if you don't have a woman on your team, if you have a board and you have five people on your board and you don't have a woman on your board, you know, last I checked, we're 50% of the population, mm. actually a little more. So I would just encourage people mm. to open their blinders a little bit and try to go out there and find some diversity, because I really believe, you know, genetics have proven that diversity makes for 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 better. It's more sustainable models. So everyone should go out there and think a little bit more diversity Excellent. in your life. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to say the Seed Camp team is diverse. My colleague Reshma and myself, yep. obviously very well-balanced team. So, yep. um, But thank you again for your time, Heidi. And, thank you. Uh, and, you know, and congratulations on everything. I'm so psyched for how, how you guys are doing. It's just awesome. Excellent. Well, we'll keep you posted. And thanks, guys, for joining us. Until next time. Bye.